On Derby Day in Manchester, the city is cut in two. The blues and the reds invade the street. If your team wins, the city belongs to you. Yes, there are just a couple too many words in there for it to read poetically, but Eric Cantona's words perfectly sum up rivalry in football. Some derbies are played biannually, whilst others take place once in a blue moon, but the thirst for bragging rights remains the same. Though most rivalries are local, animosity can spring from many different sources, more of which you'll hear about today. My assumption was that every club has a derby, until I started to wonder just who on earth Reading's rivals are. <laughs> any, uh, any comment on that? I think that's quite a good point, Arthur, to be honest. I mean, we, we hate Swindon, we hate Oxford, we hate Aldershot, but we rarely get to play any of these teams. I was reading about those three clubs. That's why I wanted to put you in the hot seat of having to answer who your rivals are, because apparently those three are called the Didcot Triangle. (laughs) (laughs) How terrifying. (laughs) It's a rivalry. Today's 11 is composed of players from the past decades, uh, nostalgic names, obscure names, who have starred in a particular Derby Day match. Perhaps they have a particular affinity with a Derby of some kind, some of the fiercest rivalries that we know in football today. Uh, We're going to be playing a 4-4-2 formation. At 11 pods, it's the word, not the number. Uh, We love you guys to get in touch with any names that you feel that we missed out please do contact us. Well, fans on Derby Day go absolutely wild. There's a cacophony of noise behind the goal and pressure on this man, our Derby Day's goalkeeper, Arthur. Antini Amy. Oh, good pick. He can handle the pressure. He can, and I, I feel like I had to get a Southampton Portsmouth player in there. I've got it out the way. Don't you worry. There won't be 11 of them. (laughs) (laughs) But Antini Amy grew up in Ulu in the northern part of Finland, where there's no darkness during summer nights and where in winter, Niemi can recall going to school in minus 42 degrees centigrade. So he was honed in an environment that requires quite a um, a lot of grit and determination. And I think that's something he showed as a goalkeeper throughout his career. He played in both Glasgow and Edinburgh derbies with Rangers and Hearts, respectively. Obviously a classic story at the latter, lamenting the lack of goalkeeper depth in the Scottish national side. Uh, there was a talk sport listener who suggested that Niamey should play for Scotland, only to be told, he's Finnish. And then he obviously responded, he's not Finnish, he's only 28. <laughs> it was one of my favourite TalkSport clips. Absolutely loved that one. I always rated the Amy, actually. I thought he was a cracking goalie. Yeah, I, I'd put him up there with one of our best signings, frankly. Southampton signed him for absolutely a bargain of £2 million. He had reliability and trumps. He was an excellent shot stopper. Uh, a very good penalty saver. I don't know whether this is urban legend, but I've always had with me this story that I tried to Google and I couldn't, I couldn't find any shred of evidence that this actually took place. But I yeah. once heard that the first time Niemi ever saved a penalty, he broke his hand doing so. Really? Yeah, well, really, you ask. I, 
I mean, I have no no evidence to corroborate this, but I, I was told by my mate when I was about 10, and I just, I, I think I believed him. So. <laughs> was there it a Penenka, maybe? Probably was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just bent his wrist back. Such was the spin on the ball. Well, exactly. Um, he was a vital part of that Southampton side in the early part of the noughties. Uh, we reached the FA Cup final in 2003, and embarked on a fairly brief but enjoyable European campaign. Um, that same season, there was a great moment when he came up for a corner late in the game against Fulham with Saints trailing 2-1. The ball fell to him and he absolutely leathered it into the crossbar. One of the best strikes I think I've ever seen. Didn't go in, but Michael Spenson was there to turn in the rebound, salvaging a draw, which was a pretty great moment. Um, and the Derby, of course, the South Coast Derby, otherwise known as El Clasicoast, which I really enjoy. <laughs> um, and it's Portsmouth versus Southampton. Uh, skates versus scum. No good scoundrels versus absolute legends of the game. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a game that has a lot of drama. The fans hate each other, as they do in most rivalries in recent seasons. A bubble system has been brought into play uh, whereby fans are absolutely segregated from the moment they leave their city to the moment they arrive back in their city. So no opportunity for fan violence, but obviously that's largely uh, impossible to do at times. And it's an interesting derby to track, I think, as first Southampton and then Portsmouth plummeted down the leagues, um, only for Saints to eventually return to the Premier League as they are currently. And um, it's led to some clashes where one side is just so much better than the other. So in 2010, Portsmouth won 4-1 at St Mary's, quite a painful day for me. Quincy Awusu Bay scoring. In 2019, Southampton won 4-0 at Fratton Park. So, you know, great moments for the fans to watch. Obviously, we have the bragging rights at the moment, but um, what a derby it is. Also, I think to cement his place as a Saints legend, he signed for Portsmouth late in his career, um, which you might think is traitorous, but wow. it's a bit of a hallmark, I think, for the financial recklessness of Portsmouth Football Club in the sense that he earned 14 grand a week for eight months, 450 grand in all, in return for two reserve team appearances and a place on the bench in one Premier League game. And this was as like a 37-year-old or something in the Premier League. So he sort of slightly contributed to the financial ruin of Portsmouth. So... Um, can't blame him for that move. <laughs> what a hero. I mean, Arthur, you told me, like, the South Coast derby, is it a brutal derby? Is it is there tetchiness amongst fans? Because I always see Southampton and Portsmouth as quite nice. I think of Portsmouth, I think of, like, the HMS victory. And if I think of <laughs> Southampton, I think of the university. I don't really think of hooliganism. Yeah, there's absolutely hooliganism. I mean, in the latest clash between the clubs I think a Portsmouth fan might have punched a horse oh. um awful scenes they've got a a fan John Westwood honestly that hat must smell so bad I don't think it's probably <laughs> ever been washed he wears this sort of horrible blue and white top hat he rings his bell he's got a bell and he's become a bit of a sort of signature of the tie um but you know the fans hate each other I think it stems from they're obviously both ports Portsmouth largely a naval port Southampton largely a trade port they call us scum 
because of uh, allegedly we broke the picket line as Portsmouth dockyard workers were striking and we call them skates because it's a derogatory term about sailors so it's it's all that sort of naval rivalry okay great well I think Antony is the perfect character for a Derby Days 11 I think he's got the bottle to handle that pressure uh, and at left back someone else who's had success in his respective Derby and that's Ryan Taylor Yes, good old Ryan. We had yeah. to have a Newcastle Sunderland derby in there. We definitely did. He uh, he signed for Newcastle Ryan from Wigan in 2009 in a part exchange deal which included Charles and Zogbia. He was versatile. Um, the former England under 21 international played a lot of his career at right back, um, but he also played at left back where he's positioned today and across the midfield. He was known for his wand of a right foot and free kick specialism, so much so that Newcastle fans nicknamed him over the wall in reference to his free kick taking abilities. That's a really I odd mean, nickname. It's just a rubbish nickname. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Golden balls is much better. Yeah, strange. But anyway, that free kick specialism came to the fore in the 2011 Time Weird derby against Sunderland. The match finished 1-0 and it was a sumptuous free kick from Ryan Taylor, which won it and prompted his manager, Alan Pardew, to say that right foot of his is a fantastic weapon. He did play at left back during that game. Uh, which is is why I've placed him there today, keeping Asamoah Gyan at bay. But he was covered in that game by the curly Afro head Fabrizio Colaccini, who has to be one of my favourite Newcastle defenders of all time. It was one of three time where derbies Ryan Taylor would play in, uh, and he played in three different positions, which sums up just how versatile he is. I feel like the Newcastle-Sunderland derby is, is not only one of the fiercest rivalries in football, but it's also one of the closest overall. Newcastle have won it on 53 occasions, Sunderland 53 occasions, and there's been 50 draws. So we are literally tied. And obviously, it's probably going to be a while till we see the next time we're Derby with Sunderland down in League One. But um, it's been incredibly close over the years. Uh, Yanam Via, who's featured on an 11 in the past, described it as bigger than the Milan Derby. So there's a, a glowing, whatever the word is, testament. Yeah, testament. Love that. Love that, Arthur. Thank you for filling in. Ryan Taylor's career was blighted by injury, um, in particular cruciate injuries. Uh, At one point, he had a 26-month layoff, which caused him to be released at the end of the 14-15 season. Apparently, he revealed that then-Newcastle manager John Carver rang him to tell him this news, that they weren't going to offer him a new deal and then asked if he could pass the phone to Jonas Gutierrez so he could say the same thing. How bad is that? Also, Gutierrez's release was quite a big moment for Newcastle because obviously he'd suffered with his... his, Did he have cancer? Yeah, I think that's the thing. Taylor and Gutierrez were were in some ways cult heroes at Newcastle at that time because of their injury and illness layoffs. So to be treated in that way is shocking, really. You would think they'd at the very, very least deserve a sort of in-person talking through of events. This is yeah. what we're doing. This is I why we're having to would. do it. You know? That's horrific. I love the idea of a right back playing at left back, being able to cut in inverted wing back. Yeah. Playing, uh, playing Ryan Taylor. <laughs> it worked for Newcastle back in 2011. 
Um, Taylor would see out his career with a number of short spells in the Football League, as well as an 11-game spell, which caught my eye, at 80K in West Bengal, India. He was signed up by them by Teddy Sheringham, who was the manager at the time, and he would supply crosses to a strike partnership of Robbie Keane and Shefki Kuchi's brother. What a That's great amazing. partnership. Yeah, I love that. I didn't even know Chef Kikuchi had a brother either. He does. He played for ATK in West Bengal. Fantastic. What a legend. Arthur, who's going to play alongside Ryan at centre-back? I've chosen Gabriel Heinze. Oh, nice. Argentinian feisty. That's what springs feisty to mind. feisty Argentinian, absolutely. And I think that's quite a good component for a player you want to play in these derby matches. You want someone who can raise their game for the occasion. Yeah, And he's played in many, many derbies in his career. Um, Rosario derby, which is between Newell's old boys, the old club of Batistuta, Pochettino, Messi and others uh, versus Rosario Central. Roma Lazio, Manchester derby, of course, Porto Sporting, El mm. Clasico. But the one I really, really want to talk about is Le Classique, which is the clash between... PSG and Marseille, France's ah. biggest clubs historically, I'd say. Mm. They are the two most successful clubs in French football. They're the only French teams to have won major European trophies. And they were absolutely the dominant teams in France prior to Lyon emerging in the noughties. Paris against Marseille, capital against province, north against south, essentially aristocracy against the People's Club so many reasons why this rivalry has emerged. And I think it's certainly a positive that they both remain so strong throughout the years that their, their rivalry has been able to be fostered. It reached new heights in the 1992-3 season. PSG lost the title decider against OM and finished second. Shortly after, however, Marseille were found guilty of match fixing in what became known as the French football bribery scandal, they were stripped of their title and relegated to Ligue 2. Interestingly, PSG were offered the title, but they refused it because their club owners, who were Canal Plus, thought that claiming the trophy would anger their subscribers back in Marseille. So as a result, <laughs> the title remains unattributed, which is quite interesting. The 1993 Champions League win for Marseille meant the financially turbocharged rise of PSG in recent years has been met with the slogan, A jamais le premier, which means forever first. So they've always got the bragging rights over their local rivals because they won European football before PSG. But they weren't able to defend that title because they were banned from European competition uh, due to the bribery scandal. And Heinz, for his part, is one of only two players, along with Boubacar Saar, to have scored for both clubs in Le Classique. He played first for PSG and then later in his career for Marseille. And his time with Marseille wasn't lengthy, but was particularly successful. They won the league title in 2010 and the League Cup, which were their first pieces of silverware since that Champions League win in 93. He's a player I just, I've just enjoyed a lot through the years. Uh, quality, I think, from Man-, Man United, playing quite often as left-back, but then replaced by the rising Patrice Evra, which is pretty understandable, I think. Yeah, I, I remember Heinzer as a good player, but I also remember him as a bit of a dickhead. And I think that was part of the reason he was so effective. 
I, I was interested to read he became manager of um, Atlanta United following his playing career. And actually, one of the things he used to do on the training grounds was limit the water intake of his players to try and kind of increase the the kind of the difficulty of the training sessions. Apparently, he was a nightmare to work for. He only lasted 13 games in the end, but a fiery character on and off the field. And that fits the derby. Definitely. I think that's displayed in the 2006 World Cup, where after Maxi Rodriguez had put Argentina 2-0 up against Mexico, there's a brilliant video of him celebrating with the sort of huddle of Argentinians and the cameraman getting just a little bit close. And as Heinz turns, he accidentally headbutts the camera um, before slapping it in anger. And the look of absolute disgust on his face as he sort of viciously slaps the camera. It's hilarious. <laughs> now, if you're a regular listener to our podcast, you'll know that every week there is one position which is up for grabs. Uh, we get nominations in from journalists and sports personalities to complete our 11. It's going to be the other centre-back. So we'll move swiftly on for now to right back. That's my choice. And I couldn't look beyond Ahmed Fatty. Ahmed Fatty. Yeah, I mean, I Ahmed I Fatty. It's one of those names that I've heard, but I don't really know anything about him. Ahmed so. Fatty is... Yeah. A wonderful, wonderful name for a top quality right back, Arthur. And when we're talking about Ahmed in the context of derbies, we have to be discussing the Cairo derby between Al-Ali and Zamalek, which I'm sure you watch every year. Do you know what? I don't think I've ever watched it, funnily enough, but I hear it's incredibly violent, isn't it? Yeah, it's very passionate, probably the most passionate African derby. Um, These are considered the two best clubs in Africa. Um, both from Egypt, of course, and such is the importance of the game that they often fly in officials from other countries to ensure impartiality. It's estimated that around 50 million people watch this game live, um, with all derbies held in the national stadium and a 50-50 split of fans. So not really a home or away leg, which I think is quite cool, actually. So every season you end up with two matches at least where you've got this incredible atmosphere around the, the derby fixture. Like many derbies across the world, there is a political undertone. Um, Zamalek has typically represented Cairo's wealthy expatriates, um, whereas Al-Ali means national Uh, And from their founding in 1909, they've come to represent the rising nationalism and longing for independence. And Ahmed Fatih really made his name in this derby with a barnstormer of a game in 2012-2013. This is one of 28 Cairo derbies that the right back played in throughout his career, which is incredible. Um, But this one was a group game in the African Champions League. Al-Ali went 1-0 down early on, but a fatty assist made it 1-0. Al-Ali winger Walid Solomon collected a deft pass from Fatty. He cut inside his marker and broke clear before crashing a powerful volley into the top corner. Uh, And it was another fatty assist that made it 2-1. Lone striker Ahmed Abdel Zahir towered above his marker. It was a pinpoint cross from the right back, Ahmed Fatty. His teammates combined for 3-1, but unsatisfied that the job was already done, Fatty bombed forward late on from right back, 
to make it 4-1. So two assists and a goal for Fatty in that derby. It finished 4-2. And really, someone who played 28 times in the derby to have a, a match like that from right back, I think he's essentially consolidated himself as one of the key figures of this derby of recent years. I think a fatty assist sounds so good. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> With Al Ali, their logo has so many stars on it. I think they've got 12 stars on their logo. But I'm also quite intrigued as to why these stars are on there because I've had a look and they've won the Egyptian Premier League 42 times, the Egypt Cup 37 times. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Super Cup, they've won 11 times. So perhaps that is the sort of the cream of the crop for the Egyptian the Egyptian maybe, League. Maybe they just run out of space for stars, Arthur. I've also noticed on their official club crest, you're quite right, it says the words Club of the Century, which is wow. an award that I didn't know existed. Is it, have they given that to themselves? I have seen as well, they've won the African Champions League 10 times. So potentially it's that and then cup winners competitions or super cups anything they can do to get another star on that logo they'll they'll take it they'll take it do you reckon this particular derby where ahmed fatty got two assists and a goal was worthy of another star potentially they take it <laughs> if you recognize the name ahmed fatty it might be because he did play in the premier league uh he played for hull as well as Sheffield United, but he largely flattered to deceive in both spells, to be honest, and returned to Egypt, back to Al-Ali. He now plays for a club in Egypt called Pyramids, which is an appropriate name for a team in in Egypt. I suppose that's a bit like us calling a club here in the UK Big Ben. It's nominative determinism at its best. Yeah, it's almost a bit stereotypical. But um, I love Ahmed Fati, what can I say? 135 caps for his nation and a star in Egypt's biggest derby. It's on Reese's right foot at the moment. This is Morientes. What a challenge by Einstein. So I feel like a lot of the derbies that we've talked about and will go on to talk about are fairly mainstream derbies. They're ones that you as listeners will likely have heard of you know you'll be tuning into the Zamalek derby every year (laughs) we wanted to draw attention to some of the less well-known derbies perhaps a derby you've not heard of or a derby that's emerged in recent years and we feel you should know about so Ben you've picked one haven't you I have indeed. And I became intrigued, to be honest, Arthur, in my research. I think a lot of derbies are for bragging rights geographically. Um, For instance, in Nottingham, literally Forest and County are either side of the Trent. Um, Or some derbies are or come about really because they are the two biggest clubs in that nation, like Le Classique or El Clasico in Spain. But I became ever more intrigued by derbies that have quite clearly been fabricated to try and give fans a little bit more to cheer about on the day. A marketing effort, for instance. And I think one of the newest derbies in world football has a lot to answer for by that token. This is in the state of Ohio, where there are two MLS clubs, the Columbus Crew and the quite newly formed FC Cincinnati. So due to play each other in the MLS, they opened up to their fans the opportunity to name this new derby. And 
the fans chose the hell is real Derby. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, what? That is so American. It's very I mean, lame. Come on. I, the hell is real Derby. So there's these massive tifos in the crowd that basically says hell is real, and there's like fire and yeah, you know, the Grim Reaper and. They're both repping that brand then. Because yeah. typically there would be, you know, Real Madrid would have their banners and Barcelona would have their banners and and they're not united in that front. But presumably both Columbus crew and Cincinnati fans are wielding banners saying, hell is real, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Just absolutely insane, to be honest, That's and a little bizarre. bit forced. Um, I actually, um, funnily enough, quite weirdly... <laughs> know quite well well Jonathan Mensah yes the Columbus crew center back he I, is I followed him on Twitter for ages uh because he used to play for Evian who I've talked about on this podcast before oh uh, what a legend of the game he is what a legend I love that um if you're wondering where they got this name from it's actually on a sign which is located on Interstate 71 which is a road which connects Columbus and Cincinnati. Now, Columbus and Cincinnati are 110 miles away from each other. So I know America's pretty big, but that's a pretty enormous road. But someone must have spotted this sign on the way from one to the other and thought it might be a good name for their derby. It's only been going since 2017 uh, after the forming of FC Cincinnati. So they've only met nine times and at the moment, the score is Columbus 4, Cincinnati 2, and then three draws. The top scorer in the derby is Giazzi Zardes, who's already scored seven goals, um, which I think is quite impressive, given that he's only had nine opportunities to do so. Um, <laughs> and there have been caps in the derby for several Premier League ex-players. Justin Hoyt, Zach Steffen, the Man City goalkeeper, yes. Uh, and also Seam de Jong. Do you remember the Newcastle midfielder? I do. Was he? Has he played for them recently? Yeah, he's uh, he's playing in the MLS these days. Um, wow. I mean, taking a look at videos, Arthur, it doesn't look overly hellish. There's a few chants, a few flares, but I, I think it's going to take a little while for this derby to turn from a marketing ploy to a real football rivalry. But there we go. The hell is a real derby in the MLS. An excellent pick. Very, very good to hear about that one. Uh, and I've chosen a derby called the Torshavn derby, which okay. takes place in the Faroe Islands. <laughs> is there more than one team in the Faroe Islands? There are. Yeah, there are actually a couple and two. Um, no, in fact, I think there are five <laughs> teams in Torshavn itself, but two wow. of them uh, have no bolt flag. <laughs> Yeah, and and B thirty six Torshavn take each other on in the league, and a quirk I think of this is that they share the stadium, uh, that's the Gundadalur Stadium. <laughs> but I think one of the great things about it is that they both have their own individual stand along one side of the pitch. Okay, so every match is non segregated, but. Down one side of the pitch, you'll find two fairly small stands, one in each half of the pitch, and each stand is decked out with either HB or B36 colours. 
cool. uh, with seating to match and 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 identify. So I, I think that's quite an interesting quirk that they share a stadium and they have their own designated stand. Yeah. Um, but these are the two two biggest sides, I'd say, in the Faroe Islands. HB, certainly the bigger of the two. They've been Faroe Islands champions uh, 24 times and cup winners 28 times um, compared to B36, who've, who've won each of those a paltry 11 and 7 times, respectively. Okay. Uh, but they both experienced European football as well. 14 matches, two wins in the Champions League for, uh, for B36. And 21 matches, three wins in the Champions League for HB. So they've, you know, they've, they've won some matches. They've taken on some big sides, which is good to see. In fact, actually, HB beat Maccabee Haifa last year, which is a pretty good, um, pretty good win. They won the first leg 1-0, but lost the second leg 7-2. So wow. uh, that's ideal. I also found it very interesting reading Andy Mitten's recollections of attending the derby. He wrote about it in his book, From Blackpool to Barcelona. And he said, that was the only place where I couldn't find anyone to say a bad word about the other team. Their argument was, there's only 40,000 of us. We have to get on. There's no alternative because there's so few of us. We can't fall out with each other. At about three o'clock in the morning, when one of them had a few beers, he came up to me and said, can I have a word? Then he said, occasionally we accuse our rivals of being a bit arrogant. (laughs) And that was as strong (laughs) as it got. I love that. That is so nice. So oh. essentially, these guys, I mean, it's a very amicable derby. Um, they like each other. I think they just acknowledge that the nation itself is is pretty small. Uh, and I, frankly, they probably want to see each other do well in European competition because it boosts the profile of the country. Oh, my words. I can imagine the kind of sky-esque build-up to this, this Torshavn derby being quite dramatic and the the two kind of team colours coming out of different explosions and then maybe the two captains side by side and then they just turn to each other and and say nice things and talk about the weather how nice there we go and hopefully we will be all keeping our eye on on the progress of those two clubs this season Remember, at 11pod, it's the word, not the number, if you've got any thoughts on our 11. Let's move to left midfield and you, Arthur. And Tunchai Sanley. (laughs) I used to love Tunchai. He was a great player. He established himself in the second tier of Turkish football. However, it's certainly his time at Fenerbahce that really served to place him on the map and get him into this eleven. He quickly developed into something of a hero there. He helped his side achieve three prestigious Super League titles in five hard-fought seasons at the club. He was a confident attacker and had a pretty distinctive playing style. He combined a nice mix of creative flair and pragmatism as he went about his business, uh, scoring a wide variety of goals uh, in all manner of, of testing scenarios. And that, in many ways... He announced himself on the stage in this country when he scored an absolutely stupendous hat-trick against Alex Ferguson's Man United in the Champions League. And he experienced an unbelievable derby. It's the Galatasaray-Fernabache derby, uh, known as the Intercontinental derby or the Eternal Rivalry. Uh, These are the two most supported Turkish clubs. Um, Fenerbahce from the Asian and Galatasaray European side of Istanbul 
Uh, so it presents a pretty interesting cultural divide. I mentioned earlier that that rivalry can often be founded on religion, on cultural difference, political difference. We've seen actually in a few of these derbies so far today that it's often a sort of social class divide, the aristocracy against the working class. But this geographical distinct divide between two continents makes it a really, really interesting one. And the matches themselves are fiery. Uh, Violence between supporters is often the case. And many instances of the flames being stoked, one such instance centering around Graham Souness. I don't know whether you know this story, Ben, but Graham was really at the hub of one of the most poignant moments in these clashes between the two clubs. He was then Galatasaray manager, and he just won the 1996 Turkish Cup against Fenerbahce. Dean Saunders scored a goal in extra time. I didn't even know he played for Galatasaray, but there we go. Uh, and he delivered the cup at Fenerbahce's Sukru Saragoglu Stadium. And he infamously went and planted the Galatasaray flag in the centre circle, which absolutely infuriated the Fenerbahce fans, as you can imagine. Oh, man. That must have incited serious crowd trouble. Absolutely. They were not happy. He said he had to scarper into the tunnel and was told that the, the chairman wanted to see him, and he thought he was going to get the sack. But apparently the chairman came down and was just absolutely delighted with him. <laughs> <laughs> so proud that the Galatasaray flag was in the Fenerbahce centre circle. But it's an incident that became iconic in the history of that tie. I've seen a great photo of Niall Quinn posing alongside the immortalised Sunis as a flag-bearing bronze sculpture. And that that sits currently in the Museum of Iconic Art in Istanbul. <laughs> it is actually amazing how many players that have played in the Premier League or, or the English East have gone out to play in Turkey. It feels like such a natural progression for those who are kind of on the periphery of elite. There are so many big sides in Turkey that they have these kind of rivalries probably five or six very big clubs that are all sort of similar levels so it creates a really interesting uh, level of competition in Turkey there's an interesting thing as well which is uh, Fenerbahce's 21 year long home undefeated streak that took place between 1999 and 2020 uh, and it was called the Kadıköy curse Kadıköy the area of Istanbul where Fenerbahce play and interestingly Fatih Terim was Galatasaray manager for the start and end of that curse (laughs) and the curse was ended with a 3-1 defeat uh, of Fenerbahce by Galatasaray with goals uh, from Ryan Donk amongst others oh of course he was in our um, national icons 11 wasn't he he was indeed a Suriname legend Uh, And Tunchai, for his part, was successful in the derby. In his first instalment of it, he opened the scoring in a 6-0 win for Fenerbahce. And given all the success, it was perhaps a surprise that he ended up at Gareth Southgate's Middlesbrough. Um, (laughs) He took to the Premier League instantly. His work rate was incredibly impressive. In his first season, he scooped all four of Borough's Player of the Year awards. Um, Apparently, the fans used to sing, we've only got one player in respect <laughs> of non-stop attitude. Um, the next season was also successful on a personal level, but terrible for the club as they were relegated. Um, 
there was also an interesting derby towards the end of his career uh, at Pune City in India. Uh, he played there for, for 10 games, uh, scored three goals, two of which were against Mumbai City in the Maha Derby. And the reason it's a derby is that they are the only two clubs in the Indian Super League from a single state. And so they are the only clubs that really, really have bragging rights to play for. And so that can get pretty fiery at times. But obviously the Indian Super League is somewhat in its nascent stages. That's so cool. I missed Tunchai. I always thought he was such an exciting player to have in the uh, Premier League. And I remember him going in goal, actually, in the Euros for Turkey once, which, again, just felt he felt like the least likely player to cover in goal. But it's Tunchai. What do you expect? We love Tunchai. We love him. <laughs> Alongside him, another ex-Premier League player, Segundo Castillo. Segundo Castillo. Do you know what? When I saw that you were you were picking him, for some reason I instantly thought of Neri Castillo. And oh. I'm quite glad it's Segundo instead, because yeah. Neri, Neri never really hit it off in the Premier League, did he? No, I'm not sure Segundo did, really. But he was a lovable Ecuadorian centre midfielder. Bullish, physical and combative. Um, a bit part player at Everton in 2008. He played nine games, scoring one goal in the UEFA Cup, and he followed that up with a loan spell at Wolves, which was equally unspectacular, to be honest. But he was always very successful in Ecuador. Um, he was an ever-present for the national team. He played every minute of their 2006 World Cup campaign, where Ecuador reached the second round for the first time in their history. But perhaps his most successful spell in Europe and the one I want to talk about today was his four-year stint at Red Star Belgrade. Um, he made an instant impact, really, for the Serbian giant, scoring eight goals during his first season at his new club. And he was a key player when the team won the double in 2007. In total, he scored 18 goals in 72 games, which is not bad for a defensive midfielder, uh, an average of a goal every four games. But perhaps his greatest influence came in derby matches against their bitter rivals, Partizan. Partizan Belgrade against Red Star Belgrade is known as the Eternal Derby, which is a great name. I love that. It's one of the world's most violent derbies for supporters. Um, in Serbia, hooliganism is deeply attached to Serbian politics and society. While ordinary citizens want violence-free games whether it's football, basketball or any other sport, the country's political elite see hooliganism in a different way. For, he for them, the Belgrade derby is the ideal setting to unleash these forces and keep them match fit for operations of a different kind that would suit the political agenda. So it's almost like they kind of turn a blind eye to hooliganism because they see it as preparation for a battle in the future. Um, and this obviously leads to lenient policing, flares, setting opposition shirts alight, the odd fight, missiles on the pitch. I, I would go nowhere near this Derby, Arthur, I have to say. I think it would be an interesting one to go and see, but perhaps uh, from a pub in maybe a city nearby, not even yeah. the same city. <laughs> For definite. Um, but in contrast to the kind of bleak violence of the Derby, uh, the ever-smiling Segundo was able to blank out that pressure uh, and he played against Partizan seven times scoring three goals and only losing once his best game came in 2008 it was a lead game and the then title leaders Partizan had taken the lead early on 
before Dejan Milovanovic had made it 1-1. That was when the Castillo show really started. His first of the game, a swivelling left foot half volley put Red Star in the lead and a low driven effort with his right made it 3-1 just after half-time. Before, a player who's also featured on the 11 before rubber-stamped the win with one of his trademark penalties. He was in the set-piece specialist's 11. Any clue, Arthur? Uh, is it um, Nenad Milias? Mil- Mil- yes, it is. <laughs> he rubber-stamped the win. So he could have been in this 11-2 in centre midfield. But I felt like Segundo Castillo, because of his influence on that particular derby, deserved his spot. So welcome, Segundo. Ecuadorians in the Premier League have an interesting history because obviously Southampton had uh, Agustin Delgado. Yeah. Uh, sounds like Segundo wasn't much of a success. I guess in recent years, we've seen much more success from the likes of Antonio Valencia, um, Enna Valencia, the Valencias just loving life in, yeah. the, uh, in the Premier League. <laughs> they sure it's very, do. very good to hear about the, uh, the eternal derby. What a great game. Wicked. He's going to pair alongside Segundo Castillo in centre midfield. It's Andranic Taimorian. (laughs) (laughs) Great. What a guy. And actually, we've got quite a defensive centre midfield because I think Segundo was a bit of a DM as well. And Andranic as well, combative defensive midfielder, uh, known as Ando or Samurai sometimes due to his hairstyle. Um, Bolton fans might remember him from his two seasons with Bolton. Uh, he made 29 appearances, scored four goals. Um, interestingly, two of those four were in a man of the match derby performance against Wigan. So he's already uh, made a mark on on the uh, on the derby scene and in the process become a bit of a cult hero. Via a season at Fulham uh, that included a loan at Barnsley, he returned to Iran to embark on quite the sightseeing trip of the country. He played for both Tractor and Machine Sazi, uh, which <laughs> is fairly controversial. Ben, you talked about that derby. Yeah, I, I just, I love the fact that there's a derby between two manufacturers of vehicles and engineering products. I just, I love that about Iran football. He also played in that country for Esteglal, Saipur, Naft Tehran and Gostaresh Fulad. Gostaresh Fulad, I think, sounds like a kind of the player, actually. Yeah. But during that time, he played in the infamous Tehran derby, which pitted Esteglal against Persopolis. It's declared the most important derby in Asia and the 22nd most important derby in the world in June 2008 by World Soccer magazine. And it's considered definitely one of the world's most intense derbies. Esteglal, the club of the upper class and ruling establishment, and Persopolis, the club of the working class. In 1995, there was an infamous game in which Persopolis led 2-0 with 10 minutes to play, and Esteglal then scored two quick goals, including a penalty, angering the fans who felt the referee was being biased. They stormed the field and fights broke out between fans and players, and since that date... Similarly to the Egypt derby, all matches between the two teams have been refed by foreign officials to ease suspicions of bias. We haven't seen that in this country yet, but potentially we need to uh, we need to get Dean out of the country, don't we? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, and whilst playing for Esteglal in the Asian Champions League against Buriram United, who are from Thailand, the match would see the Iranian side win 2-1 uh, with an overall 3-1 aggregate score with a little bit of help from Andranik and some thanks to a little butterfly. Midway through the match, Andranik spotted an apparently tired butterfly resting on the pitch. And rather than see it get trampled or otherwise hurt, he picks it up and carries it off the field. And there's this great moment of karma because <laughs> Andranik was repaid right away as he scored a thundering drive from 35 yards mere moments <laughs> later. <laughs> what a ridiculous situation. He was like a hard man midfielder, Andranik Tamorian, wasn't he? He was. And that's why this moment was all the more touching. It's quite a, quite a great shot. You see him with this little butterfly cradling it off oh, the pitch. Wow. So. And he wasn't shy of showing his Christianity as well. He often crossed himself on the field. And in April 2015, he became the first Christian to lead Iran's football team as its permanent captain. Obviously, Islam being the official religion of that country. So just a big moment for him and the country as well. Uh, And he made 101 caps uh, for Iran as well. A native Armenian he was, but I think there are quite a few Armenians in Iran so um potentially a national icon as well just just so many potential 11s to to get Andranik into and uh this one seemed to to make sense I feel really cool welcome Andranik and completing the midfield for me was my first name on the team sheet Arthur when we talked about doing the Derby days 11 it's Raphael van der Vaart was he very good in Tottenham Arsenal he was unbelievably good in Tottenham Arsenal games Um, and I think that's why he got a bit of a cult hero status at White Hart Lane the North London derby really is one of the most exciting derbies for me anyway of recent times being a neutral Um, between 07 and 08 and 12 13 we've seen a 5-1 a 4-0 and two five twos. Um, wow. It's, it's staggering, isn't it? During a 77-game spell at Tottenham, Van der Vaart would play against Arsenal four times, scoring four goals and registering two assists. In 2011, he helped Spurs back from 3-1 down at White Hart Lane, scoring a 70th-minute equaliser, having also opened the scoring that time from his position in the 11 today, right midfield. And in that same season, his goal and two assists helped Tottenham back from 2-0 down to a remarkable 3-2 victory. So his influence in that season was huge on the North London derby. And I felt he got it as well. Um, This is a quote from him. He said, I've always liked playing in derbies and in Classico matches. Even as a young kid in the youth academy at Ajax when we were playing Feyenoord, I could hardly get any sleep the day before that match. It's just excitement. You're defending your club in a sporting battle. It's about honour first and the opportunity to make your supporters proud. At Hamburg, I played the derby against Werder Bremen. And at Spurs, there were the fantastic North London derbies against Arsenal. You don't have to give me a lecture about the history of certain matches. As a player, I just feel it. You walk on the pitch, you hear the cheering of the fans. It all has that different intensity and you know straight away it's game on. And on a match day against Arsenal... It definitely was game on for me. 
So he kind of just got it. He had that spirit. I think throughout his career, particularly his early career, he was criticised for having this kind of celebrity lifestyle and all that went with it and the partying off the pitch, being a bit overweight. Those sorts of storylines always followed Rafa van der Vaart around. But if there was one thing for certain, you always knew he would turn up on Derby Day. You really did. And one thing that interests me about him is quite why his career sort of faltered towards the end, in my mind. He was very successful at Spurs. I think he was in double figures for both the seasons in goals scored from midfield, which is incredibly impressive. He always seemed to have that X factor, that ability to strike a ball from distance, incredibly creative, incredibly skillful. He'd risen to the top in signing for Real Madrid and then Spurs again impressed. And then he sort of took a bit of a step back by rejoining Hamburg. And I never really quite knew why he left Tottenham. Yeah, I wonder if he'd fell out of of love for the game in some way. I mean, having retired, he is an outspoken football pundit, but he also dabbled in the world of darts. He made his um, professional darts debut playing in the BDO Denmark Open in Esbjerg, and he progressed to the second round. So uh, he actually managed to win one of his matches. Um, He's obviously a big darts fan, which is probably not that unusual because obviously... Raymond van Barneveld, Michael van Gerwen, both Dutch. I know it's a big sport out there. But yeah, he's a big darts fan. So um, that second career didn't quite take off, but it's interesting that he turned pro. Well, the cross has come all the way to Tenchai. Brilliant turn! Well, in a game that has sometimes had the rhythm of a Friday night stag night on the disco floor, this was... A Fred Astaire moment. Exactly the same as you picking Rafa van der Vaart. The first pick in my mind was Martin Palermo. (laughs) Didn't he have an iconically poor game for Boca Juniors once? It was actually for Argentina. Oh, was it? Okay. Uh, He missed three penalties in one game, which was no. That's you would just want the ground to swallow you up, wouldn't you? You really would, and indeed, it did swallow him up. He didn't play for Argentina <laughs> for another 10 years. <laughs> well, it literally swallowed him up. It How incredible! They couldn't find him, they couldn't he was, find he was him just years. in the ground, he was, and then he, wow. he emerged actually. Uh, but I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Can't wait. He, is a Boca Juniors legend, and I needed to find a way to get Boca River Plate into this 11. He's Boca's all-time top scorer with 236 goals, uh, undoubtedly a hero and a name to warm the cockles of any championship (laughs) manager fan. And I feel a player who was dealt a cruel hand injury-wise throughout his career. In 1999, he had the world at his feet, imposing, skillful, instinctive. He's tore apart the Argentinian first division. 35 goals in all competitions, Uh, He looked as talented, perhaps more so than Carlos Tevez and maybe even Diego Maradona. Who am I to say? But uh, (laughs) he had massive interest from Europe and was a a big hope for Argentinian football. But then, uh, sadly, he tore the ligaments in his right knee. Incredibly, ever desperate to please the insatiable Boca fans, he played on, notching up his 100th career goal in the process 
before succumbing to a six-month spell on the sidelines. In his first appearance back, he came off the bench to knock River Plate out of the Copa Libertadores, prompting absolute bedlam at La Bombonera, which I think must be one of the best-named stadiums known to man. Bombonera. Love so, that. And what an impact in the tie that is known as the Super Classico. It's Argentina's most heated derby. 442 called it the biggest derby in the world. The Daily Telegraph and Mirror have both ranked it number one. And the Observer said, Derby Day in Buenos Aires makes the old firm game look like a primary school kickabout. It's a rivalry that again stems from social standing. Boca Juniors traditionally are the club of Argentina's working class or the people's club, with many Boca fans coming from the local Italian immigrant community. Meanwhile, River Plate are known by the nickname Los Milonarios, so Mm -hmm. the millionaires, supposedly upper-class support base. In similar fashion to Raquel May, what makes Palermo, I think, even more special to the Boca fans is that he went off to Europe with Villarreal, Betis and Alaves between 2001 and 2004, before returning to Boca for another 216-game, 112-goal stint. Whilst he was in Europe, injury struck in the most cruel fashion imaginable. It's just ridiculous. Oh, no. He scored a goal for Villarreal and then hurled himself into the fans behind the goal. And during the celebrations, a concrete wall collapsed and the striker broke two bones in his leg. Oh, no. That is is unfortunate. Yeah. Oh, we don't like that. But it did obviously eventually prompt his return to Boca. He said, destiny wanted me to stay at Boca. He won six titles. He got two Copa Libertadores titles. Incredibly, he he scored a 40-yard headed goal in the Premier League. How? (laughs) A goalie essentially cleared it and it just fell perfectly for his head and he just powered it into the back of the net. Uh, And he was called Sint Palermo by Maradona, which I think shows what a legend he was. And that's where I want to come back to the full circle and his return to the international fold after those 10 years out of the national team. Maradona himself recalled him for the 2010 World Cup. And in that, he scored against Greece at 36 years old to replace Maradona as Argentina's oldest World Cup scorer and the sixth of all time on that list. So a true legend of the game. And for me, sums up absolutely perfectly that Boca River drama in the derbies. Yeah, it's it's probably the first derby that springs to mind, actually, for most football fans, I'd say River Boca. Um, it's a shame it's not on television more often because I feel like it's a game that would be so exciting to watch. Um, all the drama that goes with it, but wicked to get Martin Palermo into the into the side. And um, one thing about Martin Palermo, he has a toponymic surname. Do you know what that is? Uh, no. <laughs> a toponymic surname, Martha. If for boffins like me, is a surname derived from a place name. So I can think of Interesting. maybe a couple more, like Dwight York. Interesting. Um, is that because he actually is it is it actually derived from the place in Italy? I.e., is he one of those Italian immigrants? I don't I don't know. I haven't really researched it, Martha. I'd, I'd expect you to know that. 
I, sh- I should know. I should know. But um, <laughs> potentially is. And that would make him even more at one with the Boca fans who stem from that community. So yeah. hopefully he is. We'll let you believe he is. Yeah, love that. I, I can't wait to get more players with toponymic surnames into 11s. Barry Bettis. Scotland. Yeah, or Jason Scotland. That's much better than Barry Bettis. Or Alan um, Brazil. Oh, nice. I like it. I don't think he st- I don't think he hails from Brazil. Um, no. Weirdly. <laughs> there we are. Um, up front with him, I, I was trying to get someone from the old firm Derby in, actually, Arthur. But in the end, I settled for another of Scotland's main derbies. Uh, it's the Edinburgh Derby between Hibs and Hearts. And the name that sprung to mind was Miksu Patalainen. Oh, very, very nice. I think that's a great pick. And I, I think it's very 11 to pick the, like, the second most heated derby in Scotland. Yeah, I know. We're never ones to pick the obvious answer. I think during my time working from home, I've ended up coinciding my lunch break with the highlights on Sky of retro football matches. And one of the ones they always seem to show, I've seen it like three or four times now, is an iconic 6-2 win for Hibernian versus Hearts back in the year 2000. And in that 6-2 win, Miksu Patalainen wrote himself into Hibernian folklore by scoring his side's first derby hat-trick for 33 years. The wow. Finn had already had a goal disallowed before his quick-fire double cancelled out Andy Kirk's opener. Um, and he then finished off a flowing move after David Zatelli's strike and John O'Neill and Russell Latipi added to the route for Alex McLeish's side. It, it was by no means the perfect hat-trick. Um, several of them were tap-ins, but I thought Mixu was in the right place at the right time. And it kind of summed him up as a striker. He was stocky, six-foot, unglamorous, but had this knack of getting on the end of loose balls and... and mopping up if you like from some of the scraps in the penalty area in terms of the derby itself um it started in the mid 1870s which makes it one of the longest running rivalries in world football the first match between the clubs was played on christmas day 1875 and finished one nil to hearts um and in a heartwarming tale during the 1940 new year's day match Easter Road was covered with a thick fog, which you'd normally expect to lead to a match being abandoned. But due to the match being played at wartime, it was felt that its broadcast on the BBC was incredibly important because if they hadn't have shown it, the Germans would have known that there was thick fog overhead in the area and could quite easily have gone in and bombed. So they felt there was a necessity to play it, even though there were such bad weather conditions. So that forced commentator Bob Kingsley to improvise the commentary of an entire football match that he was sat at but couldn't see what was going on. So he used a series of runners to tell him when goals were scored and created an entirely fabricated version of the match. It was later described in The Scotsman as faulty towers ahead of itself and adapted into a BBC Radio 4 play by Scottish playwright Andrew Dalmire. So, uh, I mean, it reminds me of, of sort of looking at teletext score lines coming in and just making it up in your own head exactly how that goal looked like. He was actually having to do it on live television. 
that's incredible i love the stories of fabrication to do with the war there was a brilliant novel i read called the eye of the needle mm. if you've heard of it but it's essentially about the build-up to d-day and then basically building a sort of a mass a sea of fake tanks in the norfolk area that would be seen from the air by german spotters and they they would think that they weren't going to be landing on normandy beaches so the idea that the sort of trying to fool the uh, the enemy during that time. I had absolutely no idea about that story. And I just think that's brilliant. I'm definitely going to check out the, uh, the, the theatre production if I can find it. It's great, isn't it? I mean, Mixu really is a bit of a hero of football times gone by. Um, his name featured on an episode of Phoenix Nights by Peter Kay, when um, one of the um, characters was trying to come up with a fake name to play a prank. Uh, he could only think of Mixu Patalainen, the then Bolton striker. Um, and an interesting story as well. He, after that 6-2 route where he scored a hat-trick, had the Hearts goalkeeper round for dinner. So what an entertaining conversation that must have been over the table. Do you know who the, who it was? A fellow Finnish international? Oh, Auntie. Was it, it Auntie? was. It was Auntie Neil. They're mates. Yeah. They're good mates. And um, I'm sure that that was a bit of a laugh in the Patalainen household that evening. So uh, Mixu completes the strike force. I feel like Patalainen and Palermo is the iconic Derby Day strike force. I, I don't think we've got that wrong. But let us know if you if you think we have at 11pod on Twitter. So as we mentioned earlier, centre-back, the up-for-grabs position we've left until now. So many good Derby Day options. A centre-back nomination from Sam Leverage. Sam, thank you so much for getting in touch. Uh, He writes for Marsa, 442, all the big boys, but he's particularly a Spanish football expert featuring on the podcast La Liga Lowdown. Do check that one out. Let's hear who Sam has to nominate. Sergio Ramos loves a derby. I mean, he's had five sendings of in Clásicos. But the one that really gets him hyped, the one that his legacy depends on, is the Derby Madrileño, the game against Atletico Madrid, Real Madrid against Atletico Madrid. A historic tie in the Spanish capital. And one that he's famous for, that goal in the 93rd minute, 48 seconds into the Champions League final in 2014. Atletico Madrid won the up, looking comfortable. And Modric appeared with the corner, setting up Ramos with a header right into the far post, beating Thibaut Courtois, who was later his teammate at Real Madrid. But that was the goal that broke Atletico Madrid hearts. And for so many people, Sergio Ramos, his whole time at Real Madrid, where he's a club legend, is summarised by that picture, that goal, that header, which has stained the, the memories of Atletico fans and been one moment that Real Madrid fans will never forget. So Derby legends has to be Sergio Ramos. Of course, that iconic Sergio Ramos goal, breaking Atleti hearts. Uh, I can't think of a better person for the Derby Days eleven. Nailed that, Sam. Thank you. Let's hear from Sam White. Sam is a fantastic comedian. Um, I first heard her on a podcast called Comedians Talking About Football. She's a massive Everton fan. Uh, let's see if she's nominated an Everton player by any chance. Phil Jagielka. Solid, dependable Phil Jagielka. Perhaps most famous for attempting to put his case in the face of a hell of a bollocking from Neil Warnock whilst at Sheffield United. 
As well as being a staple of Everton's central defence, he captained England against Lithuania during the qualifying campaign for Euro 2016. The less said about the tournament, the better. He's primarily included for earning Everton an unlikely point at the 2014 derby at Anfield. As is typical for centre-backs, you'd assume this goal was an incisive header on the end of a corner, but in fact, this was a 30-yard scream out on the half-volley deep in injury time after a wholly unremarkable game. After 250 appearances for Sheffield United and over 300 for Everton, at 39 years old, Jaggy Elkin now plies his trade at Stoke City. Truly remarkable stamina. And she has. And what a pick it is indeed. Phil Jaggy Elka, he sums up the Merseyside derby, I think, from the blue side. Uh, A very, very good pick there. Thank you so much, Sam. Arthur, I think you've got one to contribute. I have another player who played in blue. It's Jason DeVos. Oh, what a blast from the past. Oh, I just picked him largely because I want to get Jason DeVos into an 11. He just feels very 11-y. Played in two big derbies. Another of Scotland's ones, he played in the Dundee derby, playing for Dundee United against Dundee. And the East Anglian derby in particular, played for Ipswich against Norwich. I picked him also just because I really think that derby deserves a mention. It's incredibly feisty. Former referee Keith Hackett said of the East Anglian derby, as for the most aggressive atmosphere that I've ever encountered, believe it or not, it was at Carrow Road for Norwich against Ipswich Town. There are certain derby fixtures that you always know are going to be highly charged, but the East Anglian derby tops the lot. The players came out of the tunnel as if they were ready for a boxing match. The noise was intense and aggressive. And I think part of that aggression between the two clubs stems from the fact that they're representing their county. Norwich, of course, representing Norfolk, Ipswich, Suffolk. Uh, They're 40 miles from each other. So they are geographically different. But those bordering county vibes really uh, G them up. And Rob Hadgraft wrote, they don't mingle and have pals who support the other lot. You've got two sets of fans who never really mingle or mix and there's no proper friendships. They really do despise each other. And Jason DeVos became a bit of an Ipswich Town legend. He held down a regular place in the centre of defence. He would wear his heart on his sleeve and often play through injuries, both of which I think are pretty excellent characteristics for a Derby Day specialist and would often captain the team in Jim Magilton's absence. I think a bit of a legend at the back, and certainly a vital shout-out for the East Anglian derby. Cool. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, I'm going to pitch one in. Horacio Carbonari. Oh, man. Horacio. Is it Horacio? Is it Horatio? Horatio. I don't even know. Is it Horatio? I think Horatio. Okay, we'll go with that. I mean, the East Midlands derby between Forest and Derby. I had to get it in, the Derby derby. Um, It's known colloquially by fans of both sides as El Clafico, unsurprisingly, um, because of the manager that they held so dear. And let's not forget Nigel Clough, too. He also has played for one and managed the other. But few players have made as much of an impact on the fixture as Carbonari. He signed for Derby from Rosario Central in 1998, nicknamed Bazooka due to his powerful free kicks. Um, Considering he's a centre-back, his record against Forest stands at two games, two goals. First in 1998, he scored a prodded far post finish to tie the game at 2-2 at the city ground. 
Then later that season, he scored in the 85th minute to win the game for Derby at Pride Park. An expert turn, a jilting run and a supreme finish. Not typical for a centre-half, but then he was from Argentina. He said of that goal, the goal I scored was beautiful, like Maradona in Derby. And what's more, those goals did help to relegate Forrest that season with Derby finishing eighth in the league. So it's no wonder Carbonari is fondly remembered. Wonderful pick. Please do head to Twitter. Those four options will be up on there for you to pick. You will get the chance to slot one of them into this 11. Okay, the Derby Days 11 bench. Who narrowly missed out for you, Arthur? A player who only actually missed out for me, I'd say, because he's been in an 11 before. Uh, but I really wanted to give a shout out to Adriano. Ah, oh, uh, okay. I, I think the the one really, really big derby we haven't mentioned today, and apologies to Brazilian football fans, is the Fla-Flu derby, which is the derby between Flamengo and Fluminense. Uh, and Adriano really made such an impact in one of those. In 2010, they were trailing 3-1 at half time. Uh, Flamengo, this is. And Adriano scored a hat-trick to turn the tie on its head. And that saw Flamengo emerge 5-3 winners, which I think is such an incredible Derby Day impact. Um, so Adriano, real impact sub coming on in the second half. We've got an incredibly attacking bench because I've got two strikers I want to throw in as well for their goal records in derby matches. Um, Both former Arsenal, Carlos Vela, he scored 10 goals in seven games in El Trafico between LAFC and LA Galaxy. Uh, And also Eduardo, before he joined Arsenal, he was a goal machine for Dinamo Zagreb, scoring six goals in three games versus Hajduk Split. What a record. That's incredible. So running you through the team today, we've got Antiniemi in goal, centre-back pairing of Gabriel Heinzer and a choice of yours. On the left, it's Ryan Taylor. On the right, Ahmed Fati. In the centre of the park, we have Andranik Timurian and Segundo Castillo. On the left, it's Tunchai Sanli. On the right, Raphael van der Vaart. And up front, Miksu Patalainen and Martin Palermo. Thank you for listening.